from the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Thank you, folks, for joining us for another episode of the Superpower School podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Dander. And in today's episode, we are going to be talking about creativity, a topic, as many of you know, is close to my heart. And I have an awesome guest all the way from Australia. We have Professor David Cropley, who's a creativity researcher, and he's from University of South Australia. So, David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paddy. It's great to be here. Good morning to you, but uh, it's great to join you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, you're welcome, David. And just for the benefit of the listeners, how I got in touch with you was I came across some research that you had published, which was all around creativity and whether people in the arts are more creative versus people working in STEM subjects. So I'm really curious to know more about that research. But before we get into that, just a little bit about your background. So how did you become a creativity researcher? What was the story behind that? Well, as I mentioned to you before we went on air that I work in a school of engineering. So my background, my day-to-day teaching is in engineering. In fact, it began in electronic engineering and more recently has moved into a discipline called systems engineering, which is kind of a more overarching discipline. However, back 25 years ago, so fairly early in my career, almost by chance, I got the job of helping to redevelop a new first-year course that had a, a theme of sort of innovation and problem solving. And at that time, that was unfamiliar to me. So I, I thought, well, I do know somebody who knows a bit about this, this idea of creativity and innovation. And that happened to me, my father, who's a professor of psychology, but I knew from childhood that he was a creativity researcher. So I went and talked to him and, and he gave me some pointers and, and uh, you know, a few ideas. And long story short, we developed a, a kind of working relationship because right from the start, we thought, well, this would be interesting to look at some of these ideas about the psychology of creativity, but look at them with with this interesting sample of engineering students. And the more I did that, the more I got interested in it, the more I saw that, you know, really engineering is all about solving problems, coming up with new ideas, innovation. So there's a there's a, obviously a strong connection there. And, and it just developed over the last 25 years. So although I'm an engineer by background, I've become a kind of de facto psychological creativity researcher. What does a creativity researcher do? So is it a lot of drawing or just give us a flavor of what might be involved? Well, from, from a psychological point of view, creativity is a function of several different things. So it's, it's something to do with the way we think. In, in other words, there's a cognitive element to it. There's also a, a kind of personality and attitudes and dispositions element. And there's also a, an organizational climate or a, a kind of environmental aspect to it. And so for creativity researchers, even even in a psychological sense, but also in an engineering or in an applied sense, it's possible to look at those different aspects. Some creativity researchers focus primarily on how do people think? How do they generate the ideas? So what's, what is the, the kind of cognitive element? Other researchers look at the attitudes and dispositions. So, you know, are there personality traits that favor creativity? Are there things like, you know, risk-taking and a person's willingness to take risks? Does that affect their ability to be creative? 
researchers also look at the impact of, say, the workplace environment and how, how does that help or suppress creativity? And, and when all of those things kind of work in the right way in combination, that's when you, you start to see creative outputs, whether, whether those outputs are tangible artifacts or a work of art or an idea or a process. So it's, it's really a, it's an interesting discipline because it's very multifaceted. And, and whether that's from psychology or as, as a psychological creativity researcher looking at engineers, we can look at the same things. You know, is there anything unique about engineers and the way they think or the way they're trained? That, that helps or hinders their ability to be creative. So, so it's, it's all of those sorts of different aspects of the person, the environment, the personality, the thinking. Wow. So there's lots of different elements. And I think that's probably a bit of a misconception in the past where people will say, well, are you a creative? Oh, you must be really good at drawing. And that's always the stereotype that people have mm. when actually, like you say, there's a whole other side of creativity, which may actually not require you to pick up a pen and paper at yeah. all. Yeah. yeah, there's some interesting and, and unhelpful myths about creativity. You just mentioned one, and, and I often talk about those because, you know, in any conversation, if, if I'm talking to engineers or I do a lot of work with school kids as well, you know, you often have to get over that initial set of misconceptions. You know, people will say to you, but I'm not, I'm not artistic, therefore, how can I be creative? So you have to say, you know, really, it's actually got nothing to do with artistic ability. That's that's just one way that creativity might be expressed. But you know, equally, it's it's all these other things, and and so you, you sometimes have to kind of unpick the misunderstandings or misconceptions a little bit first to sort of you know to get a clean slate, and then say, right, now that we understand what creativity is not, we can we can sort of move forward and understand better what it is and how to foster it. Got it. And David, I'm really keen to ask you about the research that you conducted. So I think the question you posed was, are people working in the arts more creative than the people working in STEM subjects? So tell us a little bit about that. What was the the research based on and what were some of the outcomes? Well, it's a long-standing debate in creativity. This idea is, is creativity domain specific. In other words, does it differ from discipline to discipline or is it domain general or is it some combination of both? And, and to, to sort of jump to the answer for a second, I think the, the, the general consensus now is that it's, it's sort of a combination of, of things. So in other words, there are some elements that are unique to particular disciplines, but there are also some aspects that are, that are much more general in nature. And so the, the study you're referring to, we had a, an opportunity to, with a colleague of mine in Germany, who they've been conducting a, a, a sort of multi-year study of undergraduate students in Germany, and they had a very large database of students, not just in engineering, but, but in other science, other STEM disciplines, as well as arts students. And, and so it really gave us a, an opportunity with a big sample to, to drill into some of these questions of, you know, are there commonalities amongst all these different disciplines and what are they, as well as, you know, are there any differences? And, and really the quick answer in, in this particular study is we found that there are differences between you know, engineers, scientists, mathematicians, artists, but by and large, the differences are very small. So, you know, they're mathematically there, but they're so small as to make very little difference in, in practical terms. And also that, you know, it leads to the conclusion that really the best model, I think, for creativity is this idea that the way that we think, so the, the cognitive skills, 
the personal qualities, like the attitudes and dispositions that I mentioned before, those things are largely common. So a creative person is a creative person because they think in a certain way, they have certain attitudes and dispositions. And the creative artist is, is basically has a similar profile to the creative engineer with respect to those cognitive elements and the, the personality elements. Which, which is really kind of interesting. And I think it's good news because it means, you know, the, there's, in terms of teaching kids, for example, to be more creative, you know, you, if you teach them how to think creatively and teach them the right attitudes and dispositions, you know, you, you're kind of winding all the kids up to, to then pursue that creativity in whatever area most takes their interest. I sometimes do talks on creativity, not to the level that you do, obviously, because you're an expert in this area, but just some of the research that I've seen, we often see children are really creative at a young age, up to about the age of 10 to 12, and then creativity seems to diminish. And I don't know what those factors are, but it'd be really good to hear more about, about yeah. that from you as well. But it feels like, you know, as we get into our teen years, we're starting to think less creatively. And then when we become adults, it's almost like we've got a fraction of creativity left within our blood. Yeah. Why is that? And is that the trend that you see in the work yeah. that you do? Yeah, yeah, it's that's it, another important issue with creativity. And there's been some quite big studies done looking at that. And, you know, it gets down to issues of, of how we develop psychologically as, as human beings. But I think by and large, the idea is there's this notion of a fourth grade slump in creativity. So it's around the age of nine or 10. And the likely reason for that seems quite simple, really. It's that kids start to become more self-conscious then. So, you know, when, when they're a little bit younger, they do whatever they like. You say, paint a picture, they, they paint whatever they like and so on. Once they get to around nine or 10, it seems that, that they become more aware of what other people think of them and, and you know, their, their peers, and they become more sort of self-aware and self-conscious. And I think start to, to uh, sort of filter their own behavior and, and activities, including doing things in relation to creativity. So, you know, when they're six, and let's say they're all sitting in a class, they draw whatever they like, but when they're nine or 10, they start to worry about what does the kid next to me think of my drawing and you know, maybe I should sort of, I'll keep a bit of an eye on what's going on and, you know, and, and follow the crowd. Now, I, I think there's other important reasons that then begin to play into that in school. And that's not surprisingly, it's the, the, as you progress through school, of course, especially in high school, you start to get the pressure of exams and, you know, standardized testing in many countries and the desire to, you know, you're, you're looking, you've got one eye on your A-levels or, or whatever the, the system happens to be. And I think that also plays an important role in, in sort of squeezing the creativity out of people because creativity is risky, requires you to, to be open to new ideas, to take risks. And, you know, if you're trying to get three A's in your A-levels, you know, whatever it happens to be, the last thing you want to do is, is take a chance and be risky. By the time you're 15 or 16, if you're thinking about going to university, you've probably got a pretty good idea of what you need to do, what grades you need to get. So I think a lot of that really squashes out, you know, the, the desire to try different things and, and squashes out a lot of the creativity. Yeah, and I've got a 10-year-old boy and I... I'm seeing some of those traits in him now. He's kind of approaching that age that you mentioned, that nine, 10 age where he is much more self-aware. And I think in the past, when he would draw something, he would flaunt it and show it off to everybody. Yeah. Now he's very guarded about things and he'll say, yeah. dad, I don't look at that one. Look at this one instead. This is a better yeah. version. And 
I can start to see the little adult in him already. And that's a bit of a shame, really, because I yeah, would yeah. have loved for him to have kept that innocence for a little bit longer. Yeah. So one of the other questions I often pondered over is, are certain people just born more creative than others? Again, it's a, it's another very good question and with a bit of a, you know, an interesting answer. I mean, the myth that, you know, some people are born creative and some are not is, is incorrect. So again, the consensus is that we all have the capacity for creativity. The question is more that, you know, some people, it, it develops better than in others. Maybe, you know, some children, whatever their experience of school and their home life and so on helps and fosters creativity with other people. It's squashed out more quickly than, than we'd like to see. So, you know, it's not an inbuilt trait that, you know, it's something that everybody has the capacity to do. However, you know, by the time, I mean, let's say if we took a group of 10-year-olds or 16-year-olds, we'd already see a very clear kind of normal distribution of their uh, ability and creativity. So, you know, but what I mean, sort of bell curve, that there are going to be some who have low creativity, a lot of them in the middle, and some who are very creative. And and we see that then through, you know, at any age, any any sort of circumstance, if you just take a group of people and test their creativity, you'll see that there's a, a reasonable normal distribution. It's tempting, therefore, to think that people were kind of born like that, but I think it's it's predominantly the impact of their life experiences, their education and so on, that, that kind of go from a starting point to to spreading out to this curve. And if we want kids to be more creative, even adults, what are some of the ways in which we can help them? I guess you do a lot of training, you mentioned, with young children as well as students at university. What are some of the ways that you help them with their creativity? Again, a very interesting question and, and a very interesting challenge. So you know, I do quite a lot of work with a variety of schools here. And of course, one of the dilemmas we've got is that if you just go into a school and say to the teachers, creativity is good, everybody agrees. And then if you say, so you need to, to do this, this, and this, throw out that curriculum, here's a new one, start doing things differently, you very quickly get, get angry sort of glares because teachers are, are, have already got a crowded curriculum, they're busy people. So I do try very much to, to sort of give them tips and advice built around what they already do. And I think that's sort of the first challenge is if we just try to throw out what we, what we do currently and replace it, it's going to be very difficult because the system that we've created is so slow moving and hard to change. So we've got to kind of pick away at, you know, at little opportunities and areas. And then more specifically, the, the kinds of things that I would say to teachers is firstly, that I, I'm not asking you to change everything that you do. All I'm asking you to do is look for little opportunities within the classes that you currently teach, within the curriculum that you're currently teaching, just look for small opportunities to do things like ask open-ended questions. So, you know, you can be teaching history or chemistry or, or whatever, it, you know, but instead of, for example, instead of saying that, you know, World War II began on the 1st of September, 1939, now memorize that fact and we'll have a test tomorrow. You could reframe the question as what sort of factors, you know, caused the start of the Second World War. So I just ask questions that don't have a single correct answer, but instead have many possible answers. Now, a lot of teachers and a lot of situations do this already, but it, it's really just trying to sort of pursue that that strategy more, this idea of open-ended questions. And the reason that's so important is that you know, one of the fundamental cognitive aspects of creativity 
is this ability to generate lots of ideas. Instead of, if I say to you, two plus two is four, that's fine, but there's just the one answer. So it's kind of encouraging teachers to flip it around and say, how many different ways could I arrive at the answer four? And none of them are better than any other. So two plus two is okay, but also three plus one, also, you know, 1.7 plus 2.3. And it's, it's giving kids in the class the opportunity to think in that way, which is fundamentally different from just looking for the right answer, that you help to offset the natural tendency of school towards kind of facts and, and correct answers. So it's trying to undo a bit of the over-focus in school on finding the correct answer and just returning a little bit to there's more than one solution to a lot of questions and developing the habit of thinking in that way that there are often lots of different answers to problems. The, the other thing I have to say to teachers very often though is, of course, I'm not suggesting that we suddenly stop teaching kids that two plus two equals four or that you know you should drive on the left-hand side of the road and and so there are still things that that's important for. It's more sort of rediscovering our ability to also think what's called thinking divergently. So it's looking for one question with lots of possible answers and just practicing that and using that skill as well as our skill at finding the right solution. I love that. I think that is such a practical tip that any parent could even use. It's also important for you know parents who are listening not to sort of expect the creativity that we need is going to be looked after solely by the schools. And there's lots of things you can do at home. In fact, another example of the style of question of how many different ways to arrive at the answer for, I say to people is pick an everyday object. So my standard example is a screwdriver. So like you can do this with your kids and say, take the example of a screwdriver. Now, ask your child, what is the function that a screwdriver performs? And they might say, well, it's screwing in a screw. And you say, well, if you can say that a bit more generally, it makes what we're about to do next easier. So you could also say, you know, what a screwdriver does is it applies rotational force to a screw, right? Now, then you say, to practice this divergent thinking, you then say, now imagine that we'd lost our screwdriver and we still had to tighten that screw. What are other ways that we can apply rotational force to that screw? And this is the same thing. It's saying that there's not just one answer, which is a screwdriver. There's plenty of answers. You could use your fingers. Maybe you could put a coin in the slot of the screwdriver, maybe a knife, maybe a credit card. Maybe you could wrap a piece of string around the screw. So it's those little opportunities just in, you know, in, over dinner or you know, in everyday life to, to sort of pose your child little open-ended questions that just get them used to the idea that there are plenty of problems in the world that have more than one solution. And the more they do that, the better they get at it, the more it comes naturally. And so when the time comes when you have to think creatively, where that's the key, then you know, they already know how to do it. Because we spent plenty of time at school learning how to, to be logical and analytical. We just need to rediscover a bit of this divergent thinking. I think that's a great conversation to have on those long journeys when you're driving along. Yeah, yeah. Kids are constantly asking you, are we there yet? Dad, are we there yet? 